Hello and welcome to the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, A.M. Peacock. But for the purposes of this, you can just call me Adam. My co-host today is Judith O'Reilly, the wonderful Judith O'Reilly here again joining us. Uh, She needs no introduction, and if you do need an introduction to her, please do check out the debut episode of the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast, where she appeared as our guest. As always, your support for the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast is much appreciated, and we would ask that you please do share, retweet, like, review, do whatever you can to spread the word about the podcast, Um, and please do give us a follow on Twitter at at northern underscore crime, and give our Northern Crime Syndicate Facebook page a like as well. Um, today on the show, I'm very pleased to announce we have M.W. Craven, or Mike as I'll call him for, for this, if that's alright with him. He was born in Carlisle, but grew up in Newcastle and ran away to join the army at 16. He spent the next 10 years travelling the world, having fun, leaving in 1995 to complete a degree in social work and specialisms in criminology and substance misuse. 31 years after leaving Cumbria, he returned to take up a probation officer position in Whitehaven, eventually working his way up to chief officer grade. 16 years later, he took the plunge, accepted redundancy, and became a full-time author. He now has entirely different motivations for trying to get inside the minds of criminals. Mike, hello and welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. I mean, I didn't do the maths particularly well there, but... Based on those numbers, I'll make you to be about 155, based on all those year gaps between everything. But, I mean, you look great for it. <laughs> I, I, I feel about 160, to be honest. So <laughs> that's all right. Uh, <laughs> so if we... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not ageing well. <laughs> um, so I suppose let's start and kind of talk about um, what it was like, kind of... Do you have memories of Carlisle in those early days? Or was it just kind of Newcastle for you and kind of what that kind of means to you and your background? I don't. I, we moved to Newcastle when I was six months old, so um, I'm, I'm not a genius or well read on child development. But your memories aren't really formed until about two years old, I think. So I, yeah, I, 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 I've called myself a Geordie for years because it, it suited me. Um, but I mean, technically, I was born. In, I was born in Carlisle, and it, it, it was fun. I grew up in a, a village just outside a village called Hazelrig, a, a, a pit village, although the pit had sort of closed down by then. So I, I was a um, Newcastle fan. I would, I would, every, every Saturday we'd go to the match. I went to Gosford High School. I was two years above Alan Shearer, wow. which, which which was my claim to fame for a bit because I was the school centre forward when I was in um, whatever, that, whatever that, I can't remember that, what the years were called. Um when he was, and he was the school centre forward for you. So I, I was technically keeping up with the team. Um, and obviously he's done rather well for himself and, um, and, and, and I haven't. But anyway, so yeah, uh, uh, and my, my friends, because I, I, my, my career, choice of careers is just every single one has just sort of fell on my lap. And he went into Newcastle to join the, to, to the um, army recruiting office because he wanted to join the infantry. And I, I said that, so I, would just go with them for something to do because uh, we were we sort of at school, but about that period of school when you had a lot of free time because you were sort of, sort of supposed to be doing a lot of career stuff as well. And I ended up joining, and, and he didn't. Uh, he's he's been a pigment decorator his entire life, and obviously I've had a more bad career. So yeah, so I, I sort of joined the army, but I've never lost lost that love for Newcastle. 
and I go back as often as I can. Uh, and we tend to go when like all the gigs come out and the, and the bands that Joe and I like to see. We always look for the Newcastle gigs, and they're the ones that we, that we go to uh, rather than uh, the closer. Well, I mean, actually, it's, it is close. I mean, a lot of people that I know here would go to the Manchester gigs because that's the sort of big city that they would go to in, in the northwest. But for me, it's, I always go back to always go back to Newcastle. Does it help um, being a crime writer if you've spent time in the army and time as a probation officer? Do you think it gives you an extra dimension? I, th- I think it gives another street you both. Certainly, you, you've got thing, you've got another set of experiences to draw on. But it, it's funny, actually, Judith, because I've likened the British Army to um, a book club, uh, and people look at me with sort of madness in their eyes, really. And and, and when you go out on operations, you can only take what you can either carry or in your in your vehicle. And I was with. Um, infantry for most of my career so we were either armoured infantry so therefore you're very limited what you could take or I was actually with light infantry so you were even less limited because you were basically taking what you could put in a, put in your um, in your rucksack or your bag. so you end up taking one or two books at most so everyone ends up reading the same books and then because you've got nothing to do when, when during, your, during your sort of downtime when, um, whenever you're not doing anything you end up discussing those books and I suppose it was then I sort to learn how to critically analyse them and find out and sort of think about why I liked certain books and why I didn't like other books. Um, my Korean probation certainly helped because that, particularly when I was um, a senior manager, because that just gave me an insight into how counties operated and how the police um, get on with other organisations and where the where the friction points are, where the trouble is, what the, the the politics that you don't really. That aren't, that, that aren't there on the surface, but are very much there. But what about the criminal? What about the criminal mind, though? Well, I mean, I, I get asked this quite a lot, and the reality is, no. The, the average criminal that probation deals with are just nasty, small-minded crimes, by, by and large. Every every now and then, something extraordinary will crop up. So we did have a, um, a death by fabricated illness. Um, or in, in Stillness, it mentioned housings um, by proxy. It would be called. It used to be called, but it's called fabricated illness now. Uh, I, I sort of based a short story on that, and my, it, with my with my first series, we we we've had some nasty child sex offenders and some nasty murders and things, but nothing. They're not the type of books I want to I want to write, to be honest, because they're not the type of books I, I particularly like to read because I did it for sixteen years and and. I used to have to read court depositions and, and go through all the photographs and things. And I would, my, my latest degree would be up to me whether someone was released from prison or not, or whether they were out of prison and they'd done something that warranted getting sent back because it was it was probation say so whether someone got recalled to prison. And it would it would come down to, to me as the senior manager to say yes or no. Um, so I'd have to be very familiar with with um, the circumstances of the crime and how the rehabilitation's going and what they've been alleged to do. And for a few years, I was on call um, virtually non-stop. So I'd be getting calls two, three in the morning saying such and such hasn't come back to the bail hostel and I'd have to ring London. And um, and there's also then when you realise how how London-centric uh, people in London believe the UK is, the amount of times I have to explain where Cumbria is. The amount of times I say, that's in Wales, isn't it? And I say, no. And I say, is it anywhere near the Lake District? <laughs> 
just 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 recall this idiot when he's out there causing havoc so the police are busy hunting for him now because they assume that we're gonna we're gonna say yes so when you um because you mentioned that things kind of fell in your lap with these kind of career changes and so what was the the jump from the army to doing the degree was how did that come about or was it just like you fancied a new well, challenge it I, I was out with um I'd, I'd left the army with absolutely no plans whatsoever it's it, it strange the army when, when I was in it might be different now but when I was in you had to give a year's notice to leave and they would say they did say it was to prepare you for civilian life but really it was because you can't if they if they had like a six week notice thing then people would go and find jobs and then then put the notice in but you, you, you can't say right I'm going to get a job can you hold it for a year mm. Um, so I left the army with absolutely no plans whatsoever, uh, other than I didn't want to work for six months. I just want to have six months off, which which worked out fine. But I was out with some ex-army pals actually uh, in Newcastle over Christmas, and we're going from one pub to the next. And I had to walk past walking past, past Newcastle University. And I said, "That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and do do a degree in something." And I wanted to do law initially, but then I looked at the professor. Prospectus and social work was just a two-year course. And I thought, well, that probably suits me a little better. So I applied and I, I got on. Um, and when I was doing my social work training, I found out that uh, there was a job called a probation officer, and social work was the qualification at that point. It's not now yet; it's got its own degree. Um, so that, but that was the route in. So I thought, well, that's good. that's good. And by then, I was spending a lot of my leave in in Cumbria because I had friends over there because that's where we used to holiday. So, so that, that was my intention was always to get a probation officer job in Cumbria as soon as I qualified, and I, I, I got one within about two months. It was it was um, not quite fortunate. It t- tell us about otters. Is that when uh, this fascination with otters? Yeah, I mean, that, that 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 came out in the six months I had off between starting my degree. Um, and actually, I didn't start a degree. I had to go and do A levels first because. I saw the professor of law at Newcastle University. He was very kind enough to have a meeting with me. And he says that any person, because you've been out of education for so long, you're going to have to prove that you can sort of study that level. So I'd, I'd want you to do a degree in certainly a one of the sciences, um, an English degree, and, and just choose whatever you want. So I, I did A-levels. That's why I was doing A-levels. I, was, I did a few odd jobs. I worked for Securicore, doing the cash services and out the banks. But before I started to do all that, I did. Um, I worked as a volunteer for Northumberland Wildlife Trust, and it was during that time that one day, um, so I, I was getting up like five in the morning to um, tramp up to the uh, to Natural History Museum, the Hancock, isn't it? The, the Natural History Museum. Yeah, yeah. That's where we were. We would we would meet, and then we would get driven out to, and in a big bus with like shovels and tools and things. And the, the major job that I did was putting in a, a hide so that people could watch us. Um, so I, I, I sort of got interested, and there was a job came up um, to be like an expert in autism to manage them in this in this um, habitat somewhere. And I applied for that, thinking, well, I've um, I've put a hide in. I know everything about otters now. Well, there's people there with like three years degree in zoology, and actually spent three years studying otters, probably in, uh, done like vet things on them. So I didn't <laughs> with me some tattoos, and I was like, well, I like otters. I could probably recognise them. I could tell the difference between an otter and a cat nine times out of ten. I suspect, but um, yeah. So I so I ended up going going to university and um, 
and what a laugh that was because I had a bit of cash in, in my pocket it, 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 a bit older you get to appreciate when you've already had a job you get to appreciate how much fun university is um, so we're, we're having such a scream and the social work course isn't particularly old universe it's just I mean a lot of it's just teaching about common sense and about discrimination and power imbalances and all that all that type of stuff I mean so that, that was quite useful as well that's kept me in good stead and it's also kept me out of trouble, I suspect, because I've got my social work background. So I'm always, always thinking um, these days where there's heightened scrutiny of whatever you post online, it, it stood me in good stead to keep me out of any any serious trouble. Mm. And so the the way you talk about you know the the nature of the job as a probation worker, I mean I could be wrong, but to me that sounds like quite a stressful, high pressured existence. Um, and then, of course, you know, as the years take over, you then you know accepted redundancy at one point to become an author. So I'm wondering, when did the writing start, and was it a stressful job that you kind of went right now? I want to, I, I need to move away from this, or was it? You know, what was the circumstances surrounding that change? Yeah, um, it, it 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 can be a stressful job, but like any 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 job where you're dealing with with damaged people. Um, and they come in with, and quite often you're in you're in crisis intervention mode a lot of the time. So that you come in with a, a plan to discuss, say, gambling, and you've got these things you want to talk about, and you want to do this. And they'll come in saying, "I've just been made homeless," and everything goes out the window. And then, uh, particularly um, in the last stages, when you're dealing with high risk people, and we were dealing with terrorists and and, and all sorts, and you've got the police. Uh, putting pressure on you to do one thing and you've got such and such putting pressure on you to do the other thing. So yeah, there was, there was pressure. It was nothing I, I couldn't deal with. And it was an enjoyable job overall, satisfying job, I, I, I suppose. Uh, but the writing, I'd, 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 I'd written as a child quite a lot. Uh, I'd, I'd always read, always. And I dabbled a little bit when I was in the army, but not much. But I, I suppose the catalyst was in 2003, 2004, when I had a big operation um, to remove a tumour. And in 2004, yeah, uh, I had the big round. I was an inpatient in the RVI in Newcastle for six months. But the first month of that, um, the, the doctors took, well, actually, I would take me and go. I was in a sort of isolation ward type one. Said uh, the, the treatment's not gonna, it's not working, so we're going to organise palliative care for you. And you um, you basically you, you've got about a month to live. Um, we're just going to take a sliver of bone marrow out your hip, just to confirm what we already know, which is that it's it, it's the the, the, uh, the the cancer called Burkitt's lymphoma, which is normally found in the jaws of African children. Uh, which is why I was in the north. It's actually because it was so complex. The country in the north, in the northwest. Um, so they took the sliver of bone marrow and they didn't, they didn't find what they thought they'd find. So they started the treatment again. It was a three-round treatment anyway, so they just put me straight into round, into round two. Um, and, and it worked, and I'm still here, obviously. But that, it, it, A, it left me with, with mobility issues. And I was just thinking about this the other day, actually, because the amount of things that had to have happened for me to become a writer. And one of the things was about a month before I started to feel ill, my financial advisor... Um, and I didn't have a financial advisor because I had wealth. I just had a financial advisor because um, I'd been arranging mortgages and things. And he, out the blue, called me and says, I think you should probably get some life insurance. Um, and I thought, well, all right, well, how much is it going to cost? And he, and he told us and it wasn't much. So I did. So with, after about a month, I, I, I paid one thing. What, um, and, and it paid out and, pay, and it basically paid off my flat. 
Um, so when it came to redundancy, uh, the opportunity to take redundancy in 2015, and I was already published by then, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I had enough, the, the redundancy bit was more than enough to pay off my, the, 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 I had a little bit of a mortgage because I subsequently moved into a home bedroom detached car and um, it, it paid off it paid off the mortgage. Um, so it gave me a bit of a cushion because I was able to save a bit of money and give me a cushion so I could actually give the uh, the right and the go. And I said I said to Joanne, I'll give it three years. If it's not worked out, um, then I'll, I'll get a, I'll get a job as a social worker because they're always crying out for social work. And she said, well, not three years, we'll give it 12 months. We'll compromise that 12 months. Um, and within about, it was only about three months later, I signed with uh, my, their David Headley, my, my agent, and that so everything sort of snowballed from then. I mean, he, he actually said, because he signed me on the back of Body Breaker, which was the second book in the Fleet series, but he wanted me to rewrite it as the first in a new series because he didn't want to try and sell the Fluke series, mid-series. And I, I said, I have to think about over Christmas, think about how easy it would be to do because it's not just a case of changing names. And eventually I, I came to the decision that, uh, or the conclusion that it would be easy just to write a new series from scratch. Which I I, I said to David and he said, yeah, all right, then if that's what you, if that's what you think. So, and I had... The idea, because originally the idea that I wrote for the puppet show was actually going to be the third book in the Fluke series. So it only took me 25 days to get the first draft down of, wow. the, of the puppet show. Wow. 25 days, <laughs> really? So where, yeah. but where did the idea for Washington Poe and for Tilly come from? Do, did those two characters arrive fully formed? You've said to me that Tilly didn't, and no. was developed. The... <sighs> Both of them, I mean, there's two parts to this, actually. I suppose the first part is when David wanted me to write a new series, I thought, I can't just write the same series again. So I, when I was coming up with the Tilly character, I thought, well, because I had Matt Towler, who was, a, who was the sort of um, Fluke's uh, number two, who was a sort of six-and-a-half-foot um, ex-para, psycho, completely non-PC, uh, very violent, very hard, but very funny. Uh, and, I, but, and I quite like that dynamic of having sort of Fluke as the straight man and, and Tower with all the funny lines. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do something similar, but I'll, I'll go the opposite of Tower, when the opposite of Tower is, is quite a sweet uh, young woman. But she wasn't like the Tilly she was now. And that came about because someone misheard me say Washington Post. Uh, and they asked, said, what's the, what's the Washington Post? I thought that, that's my name. By the, I was about halfway through. I was about a third of the way through the book actually by then, and I didn't have a name for Poe. Uh, and when I thought, oh, Washington Poe, that's an absolute great name. I had Tilly's name. Well, she was called Tilly Dalbacon in the first draft, and I didn't like that. Um, she. So I had to. Uh, you, you can't have a cumbering called Washington without uh, explaining it. And when I did explain why he was called Washington, and, uh, and um, some of your readers or uh, listeners will know. What, where, where, what the um, sort of uh, the origins of his name are. It became a lot darker, so I had to make Tilly a lot lighter than the original written. I had to go back and rewrite her. So uh, she was a bit more streetwise in the first draft, or the first half of the first draft. So I went back and I rewrote parts of her character to make her sort of um, naive and stepping out into the real world for the for the first time and, and being a bully magnet and, and, and Poe. Um, Hates bullies anyway, so there was that immediate. They didn't really like each other to start with, they didn't really understand each other, and, and 
But I want I wanted that to be the friendship that sort of carried the beating heart of the book because because it had worked so well in, in the fluke series. But in the fluke series, the relationship with uh, fluke and Tyler had been established because they grew up together. Were, who are children together, so it would be a long-standing thing. But I thought it would be quite nice to start something from scratch. Well, it, I, what I love, because I've read a number of your books anyway, and, and what I love is that you write the characters, in my opinion, are the heartbeat of the book. And nowhere, I mean, on, on Facebook, on because, you know, you're members of, like, a lot of online reading book groups mm. and author stuff and that. And I have to say that your books, um, and the Pup Patrol in particular, when that was, you know, first out and around, the buzz that that generated online was kind of nothing like I've seen before. And it was always kind of centered on those characters and how much people love Tilly and Poe and that dynamic between them. And I think the best crime fiction has, you know, is to some degree character driven. Um, and so, so I'm really interested in kind of Tilly um, because it's kind of her sort of idiosyncratic ways cause a lot of problems i guess for her some of which is not necessarily aware of and Paul's kind of their protecting her which is also feisty herself and and certainly can stand on her own two feet and i wonder how whether it was difficult or how much thought you had to put into kind of writing her because she's very she's very nuanced in different ways with how she reacts to things and and is there a risk with that there can be um certainly there's a fine line between making her funny and quirky and making her pathetic. Uh, and I, I think by and large, I've avoided her being a victim uh, and, and someone to feel sorry for. Because, uh, there are periods in the first book, uh, the puppet show, when she's saying she, she's never had a friend before, for example. And that was purposely in there just to, just to, to get her character or uh, just to say this is the type of childhood she has had because of her, uh, her intellect and she's, she hasn't had a normal a normal childhood but I, I'm, I'm constantly looking out for things that Timmy would say mm. uh, so for example uh, I, I, I found an interesting fact uh, out the other day with, or, and I can't remember the exact dates but it's, it's something like it's not all, humans haven't lived together on earth for the last 20 years or something because since then there's always been someone on all humans haven't lived on earth because there's always been someone on the international space station and that, that type of thing so little nerdy things that I can just drop in every now and then and and sometimes they will jog Poe's memory sometimes they're just there to um, break up a, a, a sort of heavy scene or something like that but Tilly the, I, I, I get asked the question a lot is she on the spectrum somewhere and I've never, I've never said whether she is or isn't in the book, and I've never answered that, that question. Um, but I, she certainly can't be on the, the far right of the spectrum because she is uh, developing as a character. And if she was um, autistic in the, in the sort of um, the clinical sense, then there would be far less um, development as, 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 as a character because that is one of the things that autistic people um, struggle, struggle, struggle to do. So. That that part of it, 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 it's an interesting thing to write, and also you, you you've got to allow the other character to develop. So while she says the funny things now, when when Poe is sort of um, so in the in the third book, um, in the creator, um, Flynn's starting to lose a temper with her every now and then. So when when she's saying something that she got away with in the first couple of books. Things now snapping at her because she knows her well enough to know, to know that actually um, she can shout at her and it's going to be all right or, she, or she's just more comfortable and, and there are little 
a dynamic a, a dynamic of of three, which is quite interesting to to write as well. Is it hard having had so much success? I mean, I imagine it's brilliant, you know, winning this sort of gold dag reward, etc. But is it hard then, you know, when the next book comes out? Do you feel there's a lot of pressure, you know, for the same kind of success, or do you just take it all in its stride? Well, a bit of both, I suppose. Um, the success has it's it, it allows me to continue to do what I'm doing. I mean, that's that's the that's the main driver. If the book, if the book's successful and everyone's making money off it, then I, I can keep on doing what I'm what I'm doing. But undoubtedly, the pressure is there, particularly when the, when the um, book goes on NetGalley for the first time and, and real readers are reading it, rather than people who are sort of paid to to be nice. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it was strange actually because the Night of the Dagger, the Daggers. Um, which was a, a big celebration and it won and it was a massive surprise. But the day after, David, uh, my agent, took me out to, to dinner, to Joe and I out to dinner. And during that, he said, we need to talk about the fourth book because I've just submitted it. He said, it's not ready. And so, I mean, that brought me back down to earth with a, with a massive bump. But the creator's done... Uh, uh, the pleasing the, the thing is that the public show sold really well. Black Summer sold even more. And the creator has smash them both out of the park, to, to be honest, because they forecast everything down uh, Little Brown had for everyone. Some books got put back, but because my, my pre-orders were fairly good, there was nothing they gained by putting uh, putting my back, book back down next year. But they had forecasted forecast sales down. And they, they, they have a monthly um, Mike, Mike Craven meeting now, which is weird, because normally when people have a Mike Craven meeting, I'm about to be in trouble or something. Mm-hmm. But this is a good thing. Um, and... So we've got the sales figure because David was meeting um, Christina anyway, and in, in every, everything is up on last year. Never mind, sort of smashed the forecast. In some of them by four hundred percent, the eBooks are up by four hundred percent. Audio was up by four hundred percent. So like really, really big figures. The hardback run has now completely sold out. The pre, the re, the, it's gone to a second run. That, that was that was before it had been out a month, so that, that news was... I'm not, I'm not supposed to announce it till next week, but I imagine this isn't going out until next week, so, um, that, so that's fine. And the puppet show, which has continued to sell well and it's had an uptick since the creator's been out. The, the new cover, there was, there was a, a decent-sized run for the new cover. That's already sold out, so they haven't reprint the... This was the second run of the new edition of the puppet show. So I reckon by my list, it's on about sixth run now, which is which is good. And it turned out the contract as well. So I'm, I'm now on the royalty check phase rather than just trying to earn out my advance on puppet show and Black Summer because they were jointly accountants. Um, and the creator and Dead Ground, which is the fourth book of the next contract. So David's doing it by two book contracts rather than three book contracts, which is, well, it, it's to my advantage actually because it means you you earn out quicker basically yeah and so how do you write then because from reading book two black summer um i remember reading thinking if i'd written this because i'm not somebody who plans and i'll not give any spoilers away or anything but there's a really difficult kind of trying to figure something out that is key to the Mm. the 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 story in the book and i remember thinking if i had written that i'd be i don't know i think i would be 
panicking throughout, thinking, how do I tie this up? So did you go into that knowing the answers or was it no. kind of something you just had to, you had to figure out? <laughs> no, I, I, I wanted to to give Poe, I, I, I wanted to have Poe on his own for a bit, um, so which is why I held back Tilly for so long. And then for him to realise he's in so much trouble and he... And a lot of people said that's when the book started to get really enjoyable, which is when he sends Tilly the text and Tilly in trouble, which is about well, a third of the way through the book. But at that point, I, I, I knew what I wanted to do, which is to have someone come back to life, basically, provide DNA, proving they are, they are who they say, and Poe thinking, no, you're not. Um, but I didn't know how to do it. I, I didn't know how someone can cheat, cheat DNA, if at all they did. I mean, we're not getting into too many spoilers. But luckily, I had um, a niece who at that time was at Oxford University doing one of the, one of the biology type discipline degrees. And she took it to her professor, so the professor of, at Oxford, who sort of actually said, actually, this potentially could work. And then when I had to get, because I mean, obviously, the scientific solution is only half the problem. You've actually got to um, be able to work it into the plot in a, in a sort of viable way as well. So I had all sorts of different methods, which I would then go back to my niece and she would take it to a professor and say, yes, but well, you have to do that. So you couldn't do that because of that. And but and I would say, well, if I did that, and you'd say, yeah, that would work and, and, and things like that. So yeah, it was, <laughs> I didn't have a clue. And I, I was panicking, I was panicking a little bit. I thought if I don't have a solution, then I don't have a story, basically. basically. Um, well, the only story I would have would be that Poe had put some in some man behind bars, which would have been a bit flat. Well, so you just have an idea and you start writing? Not in that in that in that case, I did. Um, normally, I have a fully fully formed. I, no, actually, I, I'm being disingenuous. I always have the crime in my, and I think it's because I'm a so I always want to know why someone had done something. So for the puppet show, I, I, knew, I knew, because the puppet, I mean, if you, if you know the flute books, including the short stories, you can pretty much say which character is going to be which character. And I've been setting somebody up from the very first short story to take up one of the key roles. So I always have an idea of the crime, and then I'll, I'll throw a poem in it, and I'll say, right, go and solve it. Um, so I knew what had happened in Black Summer. I just didn't know that last bit, which is how they'd actually done it. I knew what they'd done. Um, but I'm not a, I'm not a, a pantser, but I'm not a massive plot writer. I don't, I don't write treatments or anything. I I, I have an ideas file, um, which is all like sectioned off into into different sort of potential storylines, and eventually, normally about um, so I'm about halfway through the fifth book now, and the ideas for book six is I've got two big ones. The one one idea I'll start pushing its head above me. Of the rest, and I'll actively start researching it when I've got a little bit of time on my hands or something, and I'll start printing things off. And when it comes to actually writing, the first thing I do is I get all my notes and I put them into some sort of order, and that becomes a sort of story blueprint for me. So I'll have key scenes, and I might—I mean, it's it's a lever arch file, and it's absolutely jammed. So there'll be about six hundred pages worth of emails that I've printed off, and some will just be one line of dialogue, something a little bit will be a. Um, a plot twist or or just a bit of information or or something like that so for the botanist there was a lot of stuff about poisons it's what i'm doing now um, and a lot of stuff about journalism because there's a, there's a journalist that that's helping Paul. Uh, and so by the time i've written one book the next one is fully formed which is quite handy actually because it means i can drop bits into the current book 
that'll be relevant to the next book. Yeah. So when my editor was going through Black Summer, he said this was a bit um, that didn't make any sense to have there. It, it, it was in. Um, he said, it's a nice scene, it's well written, but we can, we can lose it because it's got no bearing on the story. And I said, well, it hasn't, but it absolutely be, it'll be central to, to the curator. Um, so because I'm planning so far ahead, I can actually put these little story arcs in well in advance rather than having a... To, to what Lee Child, because Lee Child um, starts on day one. He has got no idea what where he's going. So he is doing self-contained stories all the time, whereas I'm always thinking a bit ahead. Albeit my idea of whatever it is, like the, the, the botanist I'm doing now, I will develop the actual story as I'm, as I'm going along. And so what's kind of, I mean, is TV or film on the horizon at all? Or are you able to say? Well, I suppose if it isn't, yeah, you may be able to say, me, but... This, the, the publisher was optioned um, uh, be, uh, more than a year before it actually came out. So it was optioned in May 2017 mm-hmm. by Studio Lambert, uh, who, who do some programs that you'll, that you'll know, like uh, Gogglebox and Secret Millionaire and other, other things that I don't necessarily watch. But they have a very strong drama department. So they did a programme called Three Girls, which was on BBC One over three nights. It was about the uh, brother and child abuse mm. scandal. And, and so they, they do have a strong drama department. So we have a script now. Um, the, the screenwriter is a fellow called Gabby Hull, or Gabby Hull, sorry. Um, he had something on, I think he's got something on TV now, something on Alibi, about a child soldier. Mm. Only start, I only just started watching it, I've recorded it. Uh, and we're in constant, constant discussion. He, he enjoyed the short story, actually, because the bit with the thermometer... Um, till he's sticking um, Edgar's rectal thermometer in his mouth, he, he's going to try and get that into into one of his stories. So we're we're now at the later stages of uh, commissioning. So it's it's with one of the major broadcasters, and we're waiting for a yes or no. It's the, it's now the decision where the the next thing will be a yes or a no. There's no more stages it, it can go through, and they are very very helpful. Uh, I mean, the, the, all the right noises have been made. So I'm hope, we're hoping. And it should be very soon, actually. They're hoping to make announcements um, for the positive. Because I know who, who they want to cast and everything, and it's, it's odd because I was on Facebook uh, yesterday, I think, and uh, the fellow who plays Cormor in Strike, uh, I, I, don't, I forgot the actor's name, but someone was saying he'd be a great Pope. And I look at the comments, about 250 comments of people piling in who, who they want for Poe, who they want for Tilly. But Mike, I was going to say... Not one person's got it right yet. I was going to say because uh, how... How worried are you around that? Because the ownership your readers take of those characters I've seen online, yeah. believe me, they'll not. It'll be like a Tom Cruise scenario if they don't get it right with uh, the Lee Child stuff, you know. So, are you worried about yeah. that? <laughs> um, I'm not worried about who they've got for Poe because uh, I think I think it's a very good fit actually. Um, the I, I think Tilly is the key bit of casting. Mm. I, I think if you get Tilly. Right, and you capture the sort of essence of, of the books, and I think I, I think you'll, you'll have a quite successful TV series if you get the right if you get the actress who can sort of play her. I think that's quite a tricky bit of casting. I know I, I I've had a look at um, a list of who they're considering, and there's some names that are good, and there's some names I think oh well, good actresses that can probably do it, but. Um, but I get consulted on the, all these decisions, but consulted in the same way that I get consulted when my wife asks me if, if she can get a new pair of shoes. <laughs> it's not really up to me. The, the same way it's not up to me about my covers and my, my titles and things like that. I can make suggestions, but it'll be, it's and their then, business, not mine. 
Well, we're talking wardrobe. Uh, obviously, this is a podcast, but uh, can you tell us why you're wearing Will Ferrell's leather jacket in so many promo things? I, I think, Judith, you've got that the wrong way around. Will Ferrell's wearing my jacket. Um, yeah, but my editor actually sent me a WhatsApp thing. I'm just saying she just watched this Eurovision thing and she was howling laughing because he's got my jacket on. And I thought, well, yeah, he might have a leather jacket on. It looks a little bit like mine. But then someone tagged me on. Uh, Twitter, and it, it's exactly, it's exactly that jacket. So I, I put it all there, and um, I was getting rightly riffed for it. But particularly by Imran Mahmood, which you know, the, the author of uh, You Don't Know Me, who was going going to absolute town on it. <laughs> Well, I was um, called me Euro Trash. I was tagged in one of the photos because you must have been wearing it in the background yes, in an event uh, meeting. And I was, I saw it online. I thought, why is Mike Craven tagging me in this weird photo? And, and in, a, in a kind of negative, like it was like a, you know, oh dear me kind of way. I thought, what have I done? You know. But then I realised the jacket. Yeah. yeah. I don't know who put that little montage together. It wasn't me who did who did that. I don't have the technical skills to do that. But they captured the one. Was it a library event in North Shields? Was that the yeah, one the yeah, photograph they took yeah. from? And because I've got other photographs of me wearing that jacket, because I mean it was my it was my thing. I went to this book award thing at Cumbria Life. I I won author of the year. The same year I won the the, the the dagger, and I turned up in like a suit, and everyone was really disappointed because I have a suit on. You wear your jacket for the photographs, yeah, but now I don't know if I can wear it because. Like yourselves, I mean, and Robert Scrag and the rest of them, it's just, it's just going to be torture. I don't know if I want to put myself through it. So, we have three questions, Mike, that we ask all guests. Um, and the first one is Which book would you save from your house if it burned down? Um, I, I think my, my, I'd probably save my favorite book, which is uh, Night Watch by Terry Pratchett. Okay, question two is What would your last meal on death row be? Uh, goat curry. Wow. Uh, and question three, peanut butter, smooth or crunchy? Definitely smooth. Brilliant. Uh, crunchy looks like something you find in a baby's nappy. Yeah, I'm not a fan either. Well, Mike Craven, it's been a real pleasure having you on the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast today. Thank you for coming on and speaking to us. Thank you.